This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today is New Book Day, and I always love New Book Day. Uh, We're starting up our series on Arthur Miller and his timeless classic about one of my favorite topics, human hysteria. (laughs) Your favorite topic? (laughs) One of my favorite topics, anyway. uh, His book his play, The Crucible. Um, I'm particularly excited about the series because it's both extremely historical um, as well as psychological, as lots of things are. But in this case, it's really heightened in this book. Oh, for sure. The Crucible is Arthur Miller's most produced play worldwide, becoming one of America's most popular plays in the 20th century. Ironically, though, it failed at the box office in its initial production in 1953. So what does that tell you? (laughs) I think that tells us that initial box office just don't always get it right. Uh, Well, Miller would definitely say that they almost never do. He was really critical about how we in the United States organize theater. I watched an interview that he did with Charlie Rose later in his life, and he talked about the problems, of course he would, as he saw them with American theater. It was kind of interesting to me because I don't think of things like that. But he complained that as a nation, we can never get any good at playwriting, and we're not that awesome at acting. This, um, no offense to any actors <laughs> out there. But he doesn't blame anybody. He says it's the financing piece that's the problem. He really wished we had a national theater, and he tried to to make one. And I'm not saying I advocate for that idea, because I can see how that would create a lot of problems. But his point was interesting. He made the analogy that if you look at other professions, like plumbing or something like that, You create a plumbing company, and you hire people to be professional plumbers. And then they have the security, and they work continuously. They finish one job, then they start another job, and it's kind of seamless. And with each new job, they perfect their craft. Obviously, if it's plumbing, they get better and better at that, and they can improve their technique, and the trade itself moves forward. But he said today, the theater doesn't do that. They do things by jobs. And he made the comparison. It'd be like, in my case, with the plumbing company, the plumbing company going out and hiring different plumbers every time they have a different job to do. And in the between time, the plumbers are out there doing something else, getting out of practice, and they don't have incentive to work on the things that would make them long-term better plumbers, so to speak. So he says this financial piece really keeps actors from getting better. It keeps playwrights from doing more interesting work. And it keeps theaters from taking chances on things 
that may not take off the first week to be popular or whatever. So he said that doing theater project by project makes that initial box office far more important than it might need to be in the long run because everyone's investment is too high. But anyway, it's just a thought. It doesn't really have anything to do with the crucible, but I thought it was interesting and maybe he's right. I don't know how to fix the problem that he's referencing, but uh, it's certainly created in the movie industry lots of sequels. Oh, yes. (laughs) And maybe even redundancy. Oh, no doubt. And we do need to state the fact that Arthur Miller does win a few awards as a yeah, player. He has, yeah, he, he has, has some authority, authority to, <laughs> to speak to this. And, um, and This is also one of the great things about researching a person who really just died in 2005, which is when Miller died. Um, he was born in 1915, and he lived until 2005. There's a lot of video footage of him, um, especially with his second wife, Marilyn Monroe. Woo-hoo! Except no one wanted him in the picture. (laughs) I know. I guess um, this is a good time as any to get into a little bit of the facts about uh, his personal life and professional life. Although I know we'll we'll get more into that later on. We can even get into the Marilyn Monroe stuff and, of course, the McCarthy stuff. But for starters, it's good to know that Miller was a native New Yorker. And originally his family was well-to-do. They owned a manufacturing company. But... Unfortunately, during the Depression, his family went bankrupt and off to the poorhouse they go, which is not uncommon. It's a very actually common Depression era story. A fun fact about Miller's early life for all of you burgeoning students out there. Miller was a terrible student. I know it's hard to believe, uh, which is something I find interesting for a man so successful. And he failed algebra, poor thing. Three times. times. Mm. (laughs) So there you go. Um, There's some hope for all of the uh, non-mathematical types. Exactly. (laughs) Be a playwright. (laughs) It took him two years, though, because he had to work on the front end and pay his own way to raise enough money uh, to pay for his college tuition. But he did get to go to a great school, the University of Michigan. Are you... All go Wolverines blue, go out there. <laughs> Wolverines. If you're not from the U.S., Michigan is famous. Uh, it's a famous university because it's got a, a great academic program, but it also has a very famous American football team, although not as good as its SEC counterparts, if you ask my opinion. <laughs> well, they likely could have beaten the University of Tennessee this year. Sorry. Oh, why would you say something like that? <laughs> well, for those who don't know, Christy and I are big football fans, and Christy's daughters both um, attend the University of Tennessee, which is also a big and a good school with a, a very historically important football team, although not so much recently. But uh, football rivalries never die. Never. Uh, her best friend's husband attended the University of Michigan. So she has a little personal vendetta <laughs> with that. Um, anyway, um, it was at the University of Michigan that, that Miller started writing drama. And by uh, 1947, he was lucky enough or fortunate, if we're going to use a Machiavellian phrase, uh, to have a play on Broadway. The name of that play was All My Sons. And it was an immediate hit. And there you go. Back to Machiavelli. Miller, being a man of great virtu, <laughs> was able to maximize his opportunity. And two oh, years yes. later, he came out with a play you might have heard of called Death of a Salesman. And he won this little thing called the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> yeah, we do need to take a minute to talk about Death of a Salesman because most critics consider Death of a Salesman to be his most important play. It's been called a modern American tragedy, maybe the greatest play of its generation. It's about angst and the frustrations of middle class and maybe the death of the American dream. It's dark, really, and the main character is unheroic. That's a big difference because in this play, The Crucible, the protagonist, John Proctor, is heroic. But poor Willie Loman of Death of a Salesman, Hmm. not so much. You know, Death of a Salesman, another big difference is it's not plot-driven the way The Crucible is, but it's character-driven. Biff and Willie Loman are absolutely two of the most iconic characters maybe in modern theater. Everyone remembers them. 
So Death of a Salesman has been very influential and it's obviously critically claimed and it's been widely produced, although not as widely as The Crucible. Charlie Rose, in that same interview that I was talking about, asked Miller what was his most important play. uh, And Miller responded by saying, well, that depends on how you're measuring that. And Rose really tried to get him to name Death of a Salesman or The Crucible, but Miller wouldn't do it. He said, well, worldwide, The Crucible has produced far more, but many people identify with Death of a Salesman personally. So there's that question for those of you who want to debate such things. That's a good Twitter discussion. But (laughs) I know what makes a play more important, which of his is. And I I don't know what I would say. Uh, I like The Crucible better because it's more entertaining. But to use one of to use a phrase or the the words of one of Memphis's great English teachers, my good friend Amy Nolet, when I asked her, she said, well, death of a salesman, it's just achingly human. <laughs> <laughs> what a description. I know. Yikes. Uh, well, both death of a salesman and the crucible are extremely famous now, and both are widely produced. Of course, um, the crucible wasn't popular when it came out, but looking back, that likely had more to do with things way outside of the theater uh, than the quality of the play itself. This play was a victim of the political climate in the United States at the time. People were afraid of it in some sense. Here's a play where Miller is talking about hysteria surrounding the witchcraft trials in Puritan New England, but the allegorical nature of the play was so obvious. He was talking about his current moment and only veiling it slightly. Uh, yeah, that's really true. But I, I do want to go back and define that word allegory. And I know that's not necessary for most people. And we've talked about this before. Lord of the Flies is an allegory. Animal Farm is an allegory. But just in case you haven't listened to those series yet, or you're just unfamiliar with the term, an allegory is a story that has two levels of meaning. On the first level, you're literally talking about what you're literally talking about. A door is a door. An island is an island. But then there's the second level, the symbolic level. Lots of stories use symbols. We've talked about them almost in every single book that we've done. But if every single thing in the story is a symbol, well, now we have an allegory. So if you remember, an animal farm... The story is about animals on a literal level, but it's about communism and specifically a specific period of time in the Soviet Union. And every animal represented something or someone. Napoleon was Stalin and Boxer represented the working man. Here you go. But now in the Crucible, we're doing the same thing. This play is literally about literal witch trials that literally happened in the 1690s. But it's also symbolically about post-war climate of McCarthyism in the United States. And some would say, and in the instance of of what he's going to term a witch hunt or his mass hysteria that we've had ever since in any place on earth. Uh, Yes, and just like Orwell, he had something very specific in mind. This play is about Alger Hiss, Owen Lattimore, um, Julius, and Ethel Rosenberg, as well as Joseph McCarthy. Actors had lost their jobs. They'd been canceled, to use the language today, because they didn't share the proper political views of people who were in power, in uh, political power or economic power or, or the artistic power. Innocent people were literally being convicted of crimes and sent to literal prison for opinions and associations with people that were considered to be bad, or to use their word at the time period, un-American, a word everyone knew was bad, and uh, elite people, the nobles, to get back to Machiavelli, got to define what it meant to be such. In the introduction of Miller's book, um, Collected Plays, Miller describes how he felt about America at that point. He says this, It was as though the whole country had been born anew, without a memory even of certain elemental decencies which a year or two earlier no one would have imagined could be altered, let alone forgotten. Astounded, I watched men pass me by without a nod, whom I had known rather well for years, And again, the astonishment was produced by my knowledge, which I could not give up, 
that terror in these people was being knowingly planned and consciously engineered, and yet that all they knew was terror. Uh, that so interior and subjective an emotion could have been so manifestly created from without was a marvel to me. It underlies every word in the crucible. What a what a quote! Uh, and, and of course, as we uh, will get into during the series, Arthur Miller was investigated, and he was called to testify before the House Un American Activities Committee, which we'll talk about later. Well, exactly. Uh, in the year 2000, now this is when Miller is in his 80s, and he published a book called Echoes Down the Corridor. And in that book, he says this, It would probably never have occurred to me to write a play about the Salem witch trials of 1692 had I not seen some astonishing correspondences with that calamity in the America of the late 40s and early 50s. My basic need was to respond to a phenomenon which, with only a small exaggeration, one could say was paralyzing a whole generation and in an amazingly short time was dying up the habits of trust and toleration in public discourse. I refer, of course, to the anti-communist rage that threatened to reach hysterical proportions and sometimes did. I can't remember anyone calling it an ideological war, but I think now that that is what it amounted to. Looking back at the period, I suppose we were rapidly passed over anything like a discussion or debate and into something quite different, a hunt, not alone for subversive people, but ideas and even a suspect language. Wow. He went on to detail how one day he found a book called the Devil in Massachusetts by Marion Starkey about the Salem witch hunts. And he saw the parallel from history to his present experience. Well, something Machiavelli says, if uh, you will read the stories and writings and histories of the past, you will see your current moment over and over again. Well, he did. Uh, Miller had actually already heard of the story of the Salem witch trials. He'd studied it when he'd studied American history in school. But because of what was going on in the United States, it just struck him very differently when he read it as an adult. So he went to Salem and he says this, As I stood in the stillness of the Salem courthouse, surrounded by the miasmic swirl of the images of the 1950s, but with my head in 1692, what the two eras had in common was gradually gaining definition. It both was the menace of concealed plots, but most startlingly were the similarities in the rituals of defense and investigative routines. 300 years apart, both persecutions were alleging membership in a secret, disloyal group. Should the accused confess? His honesty could be proved only in precisely the same way, by naming former Confederates, nothing less. Thus, the informer became the very proof of the plot and the investigator's necessity. Ooh. Oh, well, first of all, I want to compliment him on using the word miasmic. I know. <laughs> That's great. I, you, you never hear that, that word. word. <laughs> um, well, the reason why this play is likely produced all over the world is that this is not only an American phenomenon. Uh, we're very prone to hysteria here, obviously, but it's a human one. Um, it's political, but you know, not only political. Uh, hysteria, uh, which is manipulation through fear and evil people deliberately using other people's goodness and naivete against them and, and incorporating the use of logical fallacies over deductive reasoning, those are universal and timeless and realities of being human and not just exclusive to the United States. No, and we will get to talk about every bit of all that loveliness. <laughs> but mm. this week, um, let's focus on the back history that led up to the trials chronicled in the play, the actual story of what happened in Salem before the witch trials. Miller will take, and you'll see this, it's kind of obvious, several liberties uh, in the story. He wants to add a little spice that didn't really happen in real life, and we'll point those out, at least the obvious ones. But it's important to know 
that the people in the play are actual people. And what happened to them, as far as the legal system goes, actually happened. It's the John Proctor Abigail sexual plot line that is the biggest liberty, maybe. He actually changes the ages of both John and Abigail. We'll talk about that next week. Abigail's younger in real life. John's much older in real life. And although Miller defends the affair, saying it could have happened, and he even found a line in a transcript that may suggest that, I don't know, the affair is definitely not part of the record. The question of why Miller made his main character an an adulterer in a Puritan town, to me, that's interesting and has a couple of hypotheses in its own right. And uh, it's a conversation maybe for a different episode. But are we ready? I think we should go back to the 1690s and see what New England was like in that time period. It's a far cry from the Renaissance we just left. Oh, <laughs> so true. You know, the first uh, first settlers came just only in 1609 to a howling wilderness. Uh, so 1690s, pretty recent. And uh, so first, let's get the geography uh, set up in our heads. Um, Salem is a, a little seaside town of about 40,000 people in Massachusetts, which is in New England. That's today, right? Today, right. North of Boston. Uh, if you're looking at a map of the United States, it's uh, also north of New York in that area. To this day, if you go to the town website, it's still famous for the Salem witch trials that we're going to be reading about in a play. In fact, the little town gets over a million visitors a year. And they have all the markings of a place that has commercialized an event. I'm surprised Disney hasn't moved in <laughs> Set up a shop. They have maybe a, they have, they, or it could be on the agenda. So they have a museum. Um, there's a witch brew cafe. I mean, all the fun stuff. And uh, I've never been, but Salem I haven't is either. definitely on my list of places to visit. Me and, too. Uh, of course, for an American city uh, being founded in the 1600s, that's old. Uh, we're babies compared to India and Egypt or or Europe, for that matter. And Salem was issued as charter by the English monarch in 1629. And like uh, most of America at that time, most people survived by farming. But Salem, at this point, was up and coming. And there were now mercantile interests. I mean, it was a seaside town. Uh, and they traded cod to the West Indies starting in 1637. And that's a big deal. So there is a fort which is called Fort Pickering. So it's also uh, militarily important. Uh, and if you remember, to go back to the old days, it was in the Salem Custom House that Nathaniel Hawthorne sets his story, The Scarlet Letter, which was the very first book we ever featured on this podcast. <laughs> the beginning. Well, of course, most people rarely miss the irony uh, of the first American Puritan settlers who arrived here in the 1600s searching for religious tolerance because their identities had been persecuted in Europe, had very little tolerance of their own for the different identities and beliefs of the people who were already here. Uh, And they didn't have any tolerance for the people that were to come either from Europe, for that matter. History has been hard on them, (laughs) no doubt. Mm, Uh, But as in all things, it's always more complicated than the first pass. Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) Of course, the Puritans have been much maligned. Well, you know, they asked for it, but there's clearly good people. (laughs) I'm not sure they asked for it. Um, You know, we can't forget, when we look back, we have to deal with the arrogance of the present moment. Uh, There's a lot of good still embedded in the American psyche that we owe to the Puritans. Uh, But having said that, the story highlights a negative. (laughs) I'd say. (laughs) Yeah. And and even though uh, this country's not particularly a religious country anymore, Americans are notorious for our moral posturing. No, we haven't lost that. (laughs) No, we haven't. Uh, We just have a secularized way of doing it now. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville made that observation 100 years ago, uh, or 100 years later on, and I love this one, my favorite quote. He says, Americans live in a perpetual state of self-applause. I really don't know where we get that. (laughs) (laughs) He also said that it appears that American democracy is in a love affair with itself. Oh, my. But nevertheless, in Miller's case, uh, and he said so many times, we can use 
Puritans is our straw man because we're 300 years removed. But Miller's point is that everyone, including the Puritans, are human. And because they also were human, they were much more complicated than any oversimplified understanding their lives would make you think. And Miller opens his play immediately delving into all of this complexity of character, people's personal histories, their histories with each other. And by providing an introduction with a narrator, but most productions don't use this introduction because it's just too long and it would interrupt the flow of the play. So if you're watching the play, you can't really have the insight that he's providing you (laughs) with the introduction. Uh, But even if you do read the long narrator commentary, it's hard to understand. It's a little bit like listening to someone tell you a long family saga and they're telling you well this person is connected to this person that's connected to to this person and you just kind of get overwhelmed with the details like a biblical genealogy yeah well there's just a lot of players involved in fact miller himself worried that that was going to be a problem with his play as stripped down as he tried to make it he was worried it wouldn't be accepted by broadway because he had a cast of 21 different characters and several sets that's that's a lot, for sure. <laughs> and, and keeping the character straight is no small feat. So we need to take some baby steps. Um, I think it's worth starting with the lay of the land or the physical geography because that helps kind of keep the alliances straight. We should first understand that Salem is two places. There's Salem Town and Salem Village. And today, uh, Salem Village has another name. It's called Danvers, and it's about half the size of Salem. Uh, But these are two distinct places, and there is an antagonism between the two, which is at the heart of the scandal, and you can't forget that. The witch accusations first surfaced, uh, surfaced in Salem Village, which is the more rural of the two areas. At this time in American history, things were changing, and mostly for the better for the European settlers. And the seaports that I mentioned were, were thriving, especially in Salem town. Merchants were making money. Uh, they were gaining power. One particular family is the Porter family, an old family, very distinguished, very prosperous. Uh, you can think of their team Salem town. Then there is, <laughs> not to make a Twilight reference here, but, you know, then there is Salem Village. It was not part of the thriving mercantile economy. It was uh, full of farmers without trading interests, and many of them were struggling. This is the poorer side of town. But there's a second family that's just as old and distinguished as supporters, except they're on the farmer side. Uh, and their financial fortunes were in decline. The family name for this family is the Putnams. So the Putnams, like many in Salem Village, weren't they weren't benefiting from the economic growth. And this matters because behind the witch saga, there is a financial piece. Isn't there always? Who could have guessed? <laughs> uh, and one big point that even Miller brings up is that the, the Putnams are losing land via uh, an inheritance issue, and this is, doesn't sit well. And So there is a money piece that we need to keep straight. So uh, we have the family feud piece, we have the financial piece, but we have uh, one more layer. Of course. The religious piece. And the people in Salem Town were more secular, uh, at least in their terms by our standards. They're, they're not secular at all, but... <laughs> Coming, uh, the, the up-and-coming people of Salem Town weren't like the older generation who were committed to following all the really strict puritanical guidelines and uh, designed to make this new world, the city on a hill, a religious safe haven. And, and uh, all of the changes they were in favor of today don't seem like anything. Anytime there's changing values, there is a threat. Well, and there is a sense that I can understand this. I mean, coming to America because of persecution... I mean, that would have been a big decision to make. People died in the process of just getting here. And I really can't imagine how bad things would have had to have been for me to take my family, get in a wooden boat, cross an ocean, knowing that my chances of even getting there were small and smaller yet after I got there. And the Puritans were coming to create a perfect settlement. They didn't want to fail. You use that phrase, city on a hill, 
for those of you who aren't familiar with that, that they took that from the Bible. In the Bible, Jesus prophesied that he was going to come to earth and build a new Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem, the real one in Israel, is a city on a hill. So when the Puritans talk about New Jerusalem, they're referencing a perfect society. And the one in the Bible, which you know, hasn't happened yet, this is, of course, apocalyptic you know, stuff, but Jesus will rule and the government will be perfect and things aren't going to have, people aren't going to have problems. I mean, how many dystopian movies have had this plot? How many communes have tried to create a perfect society? Heck, there's countries that have tried to create a perfect society. And the thinking was on the part of the Puritans that with the help of God, and if they all follow these rules, that the risk that they took in getting here would make it worth it. The people themselves would be perfect. Of course, <laughs> from our vantage point, that just seems ironic. And what uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne brought out in the Scarlet Letter was that it's not really possible <laughs> to make a perfect society. Uh, well, it's certainly not easy. Well, I'd like to say historically that uh, hindsight hindsight is twenty twenty. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, perfect societies require perfect people, and uh, that's been an issue from the beginning. And, and as it often does, it came to factions and disputes about shared space with these groups. And Salem Town and Salem Village had to attend the same church. But the church was in Salem Town. For some of the residents of Salem Village, that meant they had to make a 10-mile round trip every Sunday to church. And that's annoying. Uh, they've been trying to get their own church, apparently, for almost two years, but they've not been successful. It'd also be cold, now that I think about it. That part of the country... It's Massachusetts <laughs> in the wintertime, yeah. Uh, so, you know, we have this grudge, but the real mess started when a new minister showed up who was not easy to like, and, and the churches split, and now you have to remember, uh, in the American settlements during this period... Church attendance was mandatory, uh, and there was a strong connection between church and state, and the church was the governing body. So in, in Salem, things were divided into two factions. One of the factions led by the Putnams, the other by the Porters. The Putnams, uh, who you recognize that name from the play almost immediately, were the more conservative. They were losing their influence in the community. They were losing their financial place in the community. And then you had the Israel Porter faction. It is interesting that Porter is one of the names that Miller doesn't use in the play. But you see this Porter faction. You can clearly see factions in the play. But this more liberal faction is represented primarily by with his friends in the character of John Proctor. Well, uh, yes, the group of farmers uh, had ties to Salem town and business connections and, and sometimes even personal connections. And uh, they are the up and coming group. And John Proctor, by the way, in real life owned a tavern and his wife, Elizabeth, was an herbalist and they were a prominent family. Uh, oh, and, and on that note, another curiosity that seems out of place. The Puritans had no stigma against alcohol. Well, that's not something you would think. But, well, the history of American stigmatizing alcohol comes much later. Uh, most of that out of the burned-over district in New York. And we may talk about that with another piece of literature. But the fun fact is everyone <laughs> drank beer, whiskey, uh, ale, any sort of alcohol. And even though girls weren't allowed to speak unless spoken to with all kinds of strict rules to follow... They could run around the local tavern and drink, which they did. Uh, Such in fact, irony. Yeah. In fact, the first time Elizabeth was ever accused in real life of being a witch, it was in a tavern. Uh, but that's an aside that has nothing to do with the play. Just a little fun fact. And uh, American social critic H.L. Um, Mencken once said, Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. And that's where we begin maligning the Puritans in U.S. That's history. That's so mean. <laughs> well, they clearly had their fun with alcohol. Fun fact indeed. Well, the next part really fascinates me because it involves the minister. And I think I've referenced before, my father is a Christian minister. So I find this man, the Reverend Samuel Paris, a particularly hideous and particularly evil kind of human. 
Samuel Paris is a loser. And that's by any definition. He's been unsuccessful at business and in life in many ways. He also is a particularly greedy man. Samuel Paris is totally obsessed with money and made excessive financial demands on his congregation, which is not an endearing trait if you are a struggling farmer who's doing hard physical labor, mostly by yourself with no, you know, mechanical parts six days a week, and then you're one day off, you go listen to the minister. There's a written record of all the things that he had demanded. He demanded land, cash, cut firewood. He says this, when money shall be plentiful, more money shall be paid to me. That's an actual quote. <laughs> I think I want to adopt that idea. <laughs> I also want to point out that he's the only one in the story that's that has slaves. In Miller's Crucible, he has a slave called Tituba, which we'll talk about, I know, a lot. Uh, in real life, he also had a male slave named, they called him John Indian, who may have been Tatuba's husband. Maybe he wasn't, but he was definitely living in that household as Paris's slave. And here, what's this is what makes people cynical about this man's true religious sentiment. Everything that happened in Salem revolved around this preacher, Samuel Parrish. He's not just the instigator. He's also the perpetuator of the witch hunt. Now, back to the politics of it. The Putnams supported this preacher. The Porters couldn't stand him. In October, before the chaos broke loose, the Porter camp had gained control over the church, and they were going to use this to be done with Paris. They cut off his salary. They cut off his cut-up firewood that he was demanding. I know. They questioned his claim to the village parsonage and the land. You'll read this. These are all things that are referenced in the play but not really explained. Uh, You have to remember these are congregationalist churches, which, unlike uh, Catholics or Presbyterians, they're governed by the majority, uh, so they can do that sort of thing. Well, from my perspective, and I know I'm dangerously bordering on the arrogance of the present and getting ahead in the story, but from my perspective, it's just very coincidental and very curious that everything that happened started with this preacher, and I find it a sacrilege and angering because he is only able to get away with a lot of this because the people of his congregation are actually good people godly people, moral people trying to do the right thing, and he's going to use all those things against them. Just a heads up, I'm sure there are going to be comparisons between this preacher and another historical figure in American history soon. I think there is. uh, Obviously, you're not alone. Um, it, It all started in the winter of 1692, and first of all, it's incredibly cold, uh, but one evening after dinner at Paris's house, his daughter Betty aged nine, which is important, and his niece Abigail, aged 11, which is important, and uh, maybe even some other girls, but but for sure these two, they go upstairs with his Indian slave, Tituba, and likely for fun, but we don't know how things started, they began doing things they called black magic, telling fortunes and inviting spirits to come, that sort of thing, which is totally forbidden in Puritan society. And And in the Christian faith at all times, like since forever, by the way. (laughs) Um, But the account uh, goes that all of a sudden they saw something. They saw a specter, which is a word we're going to have to remember, a ghost. Uh, Betty began to have convulsive fits, and she apparently struggled like she was being attacked. And Abigail also began to have these fits, too. And the word they used was afflicted. Uh, Paris got frightened, and he sent for the village doctor, who told him there was nothing physically wrong with the girls, and that this was witchcraft. And I want to interject here, because most modern Americans don't understand this sort of thing at all. But growing up in Brazil and then living in Zimbabwe as a child, uh, this sort of thing isn't strange to me. I really don't think it's strange to many people, maybe even most people around the world. It's estimated today that 40% of the world is animistic. But that just means that 40% of the world believes and occasionally engages 
with the spirit world, and I bet that number really is far larger if people were honest, the invisible world, but that world where people interact with spirits. In Brazil, we have an actual faith of, of that call, that's called spiritism, and 2% of the total population openly identify as being spiritist. But animism in itself is practiced under many different names, and in every culture on earth, including Western cultures, we have practices that are animistic. I want to point out that it was practiced in the Americas. Animism was far before any European settlers ever showed up here. So it was really the original American religion. Tituba, although in Miller's play, she's African-American, in real life, she was a Native American. This means that her original religion would have been animism, something that lots of people practice. Well, great point. And although no Puritan would have openly confessed um, to messing with spirits, we know that lots of people do, even devoutly religious ones. And we know this happened because there are historical records of it occurring. There are uh, documents referring a neighbor of Paris by the name of Mary Sibley, who asked John Indian, Paris's male slave, to make a witch's cake using Betty and Abigail's urine. Nice. Yeah, and and although in the cases of these two girls, the witch cake didn't reveal anything, it goes to show that this sort of thing actually existed. Well, today, you know, people are just not familiar uh, with any version of animism, or at least they aren't in academia, uh, and most of us have never met a witch doctor, and we don't understand the thinking behind these kinds of things. And so it makes this play feel strange. And I've read lots of articles trying to scientifically explain what had happened to these girls that made them convulse. Uh, you know, were they possessed? Did they ergot, which is a fungus that's linked to LSD? Were they just pretending? Were they having an emotional a fit because were they going to get in trouble for messing around with Tatuba and kind of you know lose their minds? There's all sorts of theories that have been floating around, obviously for 300 years, but no one really knows. We can't get to the truth of what happened to these girls. Miller has his own theory, and it's uh, not implausible at all that these girls were just faking it because they had been caught messing with witchcraft, and that is. A big no-no. Right. So uh, Dr. Griggs diagnosed witchcraft to the minister's daughter and niece. And uh, that's not good for the minister who's (laughs) already in a lot of trouble. I'd say he's lost his firewood. (laughs) In the middle of a church split. What we know for sure is that uh, however it happened, Betty and Abigail began to name names of people who they claim they saw spirits of or, or specters as they called them. Well, the concept of specters was nothing that I was familiar with. So, I mean, I've heard of ghosts, but can you explain uh, what that term means? Absolutely. And and remember, don't let the arrogance of the present cloud how you view this, uh, because for us, this might seem strange and unreasonable, but it's absolutely not unreasonable. And so here's how it worked. Uh, The people, a religious people, definitely believed in a spirit world, and they believed that all spirits were devils. They believed that the devil would come and would make deals with people, thus making the people powerful enough to send their specters or their spirits to haunt godly people. So someone could say, Christy Specter came to me in the middle of the night and tried to kill me. Oh, dear. <laughs> and you could say, but I was at home. Gary was there. He can prove it. And the accuser could say, I didn't say your body was there. Your specter was there. Oh, dear. And as you can imagine, it's difficult to defend an accusation like that. I mean, there's nothing to verify what you did except to word of the accuser. They call this spectral evidence. Uh, and this is where, uh, as we look back at Paris and then Putnam, the story gets suspicious looking from <laughs> the point of history. Paris, the minister under attack, started to accuse people. And what we will see over time, uh, historically, they were ironically the same people that were opposing him in all of the well, religious Well, of course disputes. they were. The specters mm. knew who to target. That's right. In other words, <laughs> most of the accusers are of the Putnam faction, and almost all of the accused were of the Porter faction. Interesting. Well, and then they dragged this poor 
Native American woman Tituba into the mix. Well, um, you know, her role is, is critical, and it really caused the whole thing to take off. But remember, Tituba is the one player here that we we shouldn't judge too harshly. Um, Tituba and then her husband, John, have uh, both been such an interesting part in the story. And Tituba has been um, quite misrepresented, even by Miller, in this play. But... Tituba, before you feel too sorry for her because she did take a beating, oh, literally, she does. metaphorically. <laughs> this is one player who managed to survive the scandal and did eventually. It seems that she gets her freedom out of all of this. and um, She is the first accused, but also she's the first real accuser. Uh, although history tells us she was likely coerced by Paris to make the accusations she made, uh, and she did recant them later in life. Tituba confessed to being involved in a satanic conspiracy aimed at the minister. She confessed uh, that there were several witches from Boston whose specters met invisibly at the minister's house, and they had recruited witches even in the town. And Tituba confessed that she spoke directly with the devil that she said was a man dressed in black and that she signed something they called the devil's book. She said there were nine witches. When she was pressed, she named two older women who were not very well liked in the town, Sarah Osmond and Sarah Good. Well, I want to say right off the bat that Tituba would eventually claim that Paris physically beat her before her first examination and told her exactly what to say, which, by the way, he probably got out of a book by Cotton Mather. Anyway, whether he did that or not, what we know for sure is that Tituba was interrogated five times. That's more than any other defendant. And at great length, she was busted with these little girls, and her life was literally in danger. She had to give the magistrate something. But to me, her story, I mean, it does. It seems so fanciful. I can't imagine. I know it's hard to believe, but... I can't imagine people believing this. Like she told them that she rode on a pole and flew through the air to the houses of two church families and attacked their children. Hmm. Well, her testimony, whether it was coerced or not, really set the stage for uh, the judicial conduct of the future examinations. And Tituba talked of uh, signing the devil's book and witches' meetings and all the things you're going to see in a play that sounds really strange to modern ears. Uh, by the end of March, Lawson, the former minister of Salem, who had come back to investigate, had determined that the devil had come to wreck the church because of their internal dispute and that this was the devil's doing. So he claimed with authority that there were 23 or 24 witches that had been spectrally seen in the village. That's a lot. Well, we'll talk about this later. And, of course, they're all women, but Gary. Oh, my. <laughs> I know other There's towns. A can of I know. I know other towns had witches, too. And that's what I find strange about this particular situation. Because why, can you inf give us some ideas about why this these two little girls and what they did blew up to be so much larger than anything that had ever happened in any other place. Well, really, there's a couple of important legal reasons uh, for this, for which sound a little boring to talk about, but actually they made a big difference. In the settlements before this time, there had been rules. And in the past, if you wanted to accuse a person, you had to present a monetary bond for prosecution of the complaint you were filing. So you had to pay money. You did. You had to put money on the table. So the purpose of this was precisely to keep people from running around charging other people with all kinds of uh, frivolous crimes. And if you wanted to accuse someone of anything, you had to put some money literally on the table. So for whatever reason, John Hawthorne, and you'll see his name in the play, uh, as well as other powerful men in town, they suspended this practice. So all of a sudden... It was cheap and easy to accuse whoever you wanted to. And like you would expect, all of a sudden the courts are overflowing with complaints and hearings and arrests. And apparently in this um, city on a hill, there had been a lot of bitterness <laughs> brewing for a really long time. And uh, many, many longstanding grudges and feuds were just waiting for this opportunity. Now they had one. Uh, but 
another legal precedent uh, was changed. That was clearly a bad idea, and that affected how things turned out. Uh, in Salem, in like other places, they didn't separate the accusers from each other. So you could accuse people together. This allowed people to collaborate and intimidate defendants. And so they would so say, yeah, they, what you said. <laughs> it's a, it was basically a small mob coming after you. Well, hopefully we've helped set the stage for the f- start of this. Not long, really. It's just a four-act play. Very packed with all kinds of drama. And next week we'll open the text and see how Miller chooses to represent the story as he understood it to have happened. And, you know, I, we're going to talk about some of the discrepancies in the history, but I've heard many, many historians say that he does capture the essence of what it means and of what happened. But not only is he trying to do that, obviously the point to make is it's an allegory as he sees it or saw it evolving again in his day, in the American context of the 1950s. Because for Miller, the Puritans are not the only ones capable of witch hunting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so true. So we're going to go from the 1690s to the 1950s. I think and we are. See how they compare. Well, thanks for being with us. We appreciate you listening in. Um, we'd like to ask you a favor. Please text an episode to your friends. Uh, also, follow us on Instagram and Facebook and check out our webpage at uh, howtolovelitpodcast.com. We like to remind teachers we have teaching resources on that site for you to use in your classroom along with the podcast. Thanks for being with us. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.